Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we are going to discuss some iconic texts in women's history. The 1848 Seneca Falls Convention was the first women's rights convention in American history, and the speeches delivered there have been touchstones for women's rights movements all over the world ever since. The convention is considered the kickoff of the women's suffrage movement in the United States, even though it would be 72 years before the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, which of course guaranteed women the right to vote, and it would be 117 more years before the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, which protected Black men's and women's right to vote. So this was a slow and painful process, and amidst some of the inspiring language of the Seneca Falls Convention speeches, you can already see some big problems that would keep thwarting the effort toward voting justice for all Americans. But we'll get to that later. First, we're going to introduce my reading partner, Courtney McPhee. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for reading and for being here today. So should we dive in? Yes. Okay. So... First, let's talk about the organizers of the convention, the organizers and the speakers at the convention, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So Courtney, can you start by telling us about Lucretia Mott? I can. Born January 3rd, 1793, Lucretia Coffin was raised in a Quaker family in Boston. She was sent to a Quaker school where she became even more adamant in her belief that all are born equal. When she finished school, she stayed on as a teacher, then became a Quaker preacher, where she became a staunch abolitionist and women's rights activist. By 1811, Mott was living in Philadelphia, where she married her father's business partner, James Mott. Mott was passionate about her work as an abolitionist, something that was supported by her husband. She started the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society in 1833 after working with William Lloyd Garrison, an abolitionist and women's rights activist who encouraged women to be involved in the movements. He encouraged Mott and all women to write and speak out about these issues, which caused Mott to be ridiculed for her acting in ways that were unbecoming of women. However, she did not let this stop her. Mott soon became frustrated that, as a woman, she was not allowed to participate in many of the abolitionist groups and conventions. It was at this time she met Elizabeth Cady Stanton with their respective husbands at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, England. The two women became allies when the male delegates attending the con convention voted that women should be denied participation in the proceedings, even if they, like Mott, had been nominated to serve as official delegates of their respective abolitionist societies. After considerable debate, the women were required to sit in a roped-off section hidden from the view of the men in attendance. They were soon joined by, by the prominent abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who arrived after the vote had been taken and, in protest of this outcome, refused to seat, electing instead to sit with the women. The humiliation of this event, forced to be seated separately, not even seen by the men, sparked fury in the women. This event became a catalyst for their own movement and convention. In 1848, while at a tea with some close friends, Mott and Stanton came up with the idea of the Seneca Falls Convention. Planned for only 10 days later, the women published an invitation to the convention in several papers, including Frederick Douglass's publication, The North Star. Douglass was eager to attend and show his support for Mott, Stanton, and women's rights. 
Though Mott considered women's rights the most important question of her life, she remained committed to abolition, protesting the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. After living a life full of activism and advocacy, Mott died on November 11, 1880, of pneumonia and was buried near her home north of Philadelphia. Great. Thanks, Courtney. Um, So I researched a bit about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, Elizabeth Cady, the eighth of 11 children, was born in Johnstown, New York, on November 12th, 1815. That, I think it's interesting, that makes her 22 years younger than Lucretia Mott. And these two women had a really close friendship. And I I think it's actually really neat that they were two, almost like two different generations. Lucretia Mott could have been her mother, um, but they had this lifelong friendship and shared passion. Anyway, um, Elizabeth's father was a lawyer and a judge, and he introduced his daughter to the law. Even as a young girl, she enjoyed reading her father's law books and debating legal issues with his law clerks that would come into his office. Um, And it was this early exposure to law, in part, that caused Stanton to realize how disproportionately the law favored men over women, particularly married women. And her realization that married women had virtually no property, no income, no access or opportunities for employment, or even custody rights over their own children helped her uh, to set her course toward changing these inequities in society. Moving on, though, she was educated at a local high school and was a stellar student um, until about the age of 16. Her mother had lost six children to early deaths and really struggled with depression and was emotionally absent from Elizabeth's life. And another one, the, I believe the seventh child that her parents had lost um, was her 20-year-old brother, Eliezer. And when he died, Elizabeth went to her father, whom she really loved, and she said um, she would try to be all that her brother had been to her father. And her father's response was, oh, oh, my daughter, I wish you were a boy. And who knows what he was thinking when he said that, but it devastated Elizabeth, but just motivated her to work harder. She wanted to attend the college where her, her deceased brother had, partic- had um, studied, but females were not admitted. So she ended up having to go to a different college, but she was college educated. She met and married Henry Brewster Stanton as a young woman, and they were both very active in the abolitionist movement. They married in 1840, and Elizabeth Cady requested the minister that the phrase, promise to obey, be removed from the wedding vows. (laughs) And she later wrote, quote, I obstinately refused to obey one with whom I supposed I was entering into an equal relation. End of quote. The couple had seven children, and again, they worked fervently in the cause of abolition. And then, as Courtney mentioned and told the story, the two of them went uh, to London for an anti-slavery convention. That's where she met Lucretia Mott, and that propelled the two women toward um, the women's movement. So now I think let's jump into the texts, Courtney. So we chose to read the transcripts of some of the most important speeches given at the convention. So, Courtney, can you give us kind of an outline of the three speeches that we'll be discussing today? Sure. So there were two days of the convention, and um, we're looking mostly at the first day. Um, This is when only women were present. They didn't allow Mm -hmm. men to come until the second day of the convention. 
So first we have the Declaration of Sentiments. Um, it's a really powerful document, which was modeled after the Constitution stating the rights of women. Um, so it's a, it's a really neat um, kind of adaptation of the Constitution to cover women's rights. Mm-hmm. The next document we're going to cover is the resolutions. These were set a set of actions that women wanted to fight for. The most well-known is Resolution 9, which boldly stated that women should have the right to vote. The resolutions were put to a vote among the women and all but the ninth passed. The women were a bit mm. scandalized by this res- resolution for suffrage that Stanton and Mott had kind of snuck in. So after the ninth resolution failed to pass, the organizers of the convention had Frederick Douglass speak, and then it was followed by the keynote speech um, by Stanton. So both appealed to the audience to pass the ninth resolution. Those speeches held sway. And when the resolutions came up to a vote after, all 11 resolutions, including the ninth, passed. Wow. Okay. And so then it was really Frederick Douglass that changed the momentum of the convention, it sounds like, because the ninth ninth resolution didn't pass. With the keynote speech, yeah, by Stanton. So those two things working together are really what helped the ninth resolution pass. Okay. That's amazing. Okay, perfect. Well, that's a great setup. So Stanton takes the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution as a starting point and applies it to women. And so she evokes the language, like word for word at the beginning, she says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary and to make a big change, right? And follows it with, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, etc., etc. So after the introductory paragraph which uses that language as a template, she then takes on the project really of breaking down patriarchy, right? Of going through a lot of the policies and laws and cultural practices within the culture and breaking it down and saying, this is unjust, this is unjust, one by one. She she begins with it kind of a foundation that sets up all of these points that she's going to make where she points out that men have always placed themselves in the position to make rules for women. And from that position of power, they've restricted the rights of women. And here's a quote from the declaration. It says, the history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman, having in direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then she just goes one by one. She says, he has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. So basically, he's denied her the right to vote. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice, evoking Abigail Adams, of course. Having deprived her of this first right of a citizen, the elective franchise, thereby leaving her without representation in the halls of legislation, He has oppressed her on all sides. And then she just goes on and on with very specific things. He has made her, if married, in the eyes of the law, civilly dead. He's taken from her all her rights of property, even the wages she earns, which, of course, really was the law under the laws of coverture. In the covenant of marriage, she's compelled to promise obedience to her husband, becoming, to all intents and purposes, her master, the law giving him power to deprive her of her liberty and administer chastisement which means like physical beatings, which were legal in the United States. Oh, I just looked up the year of when 
beatings were officially like banned in the United States. I feel like it was right around 1920 that it was still legal for a husband to beat his wife. Yeah, I know. Courtney's making the head exploding. (laughs) I feel like I have flames coming out of my face. Uh Yeah, it's terrible. Anyway, so, so it goes on for a long time. You can look up this document is on the internet, easy to find. And I mean, she, all of these points are really, really compelling. She talks about how women can't go to college. Women can't go into certain careers and professions that are more um, prestigious and more um, invigorating and make more money like theology or medicine or law that she's ruled over by the state and by the church and has this subordinate position. She wraps up this section by saying he has endeavored, meaning he, he as in man, right? Like in general, he has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. So the next portion of the convention is um, the resolutions. And this is a list of action items. And there are many, many important ones. And it's really worth looking the, looking up this document online. It's really short, easy to read. Um, and there are a lot of important resolutions, but I'm only going to highlight one. And that is um, this. Here's the quote that the women of this country ought to be enlightened in regard to the laws under which they live, that they may no longer publish their degradation by declaring themselves satisfied with their present position, nor their ignorance by asserting that they have all the rights they want. She says that women have basically a duty to enlighten other women to wake them up Okay, so let's proceed to the next portion of the document, and that is the keynote address. So, Courtney, why don't you take it away? Great. So, the keynote address was given by um, Stanton. So, this is really interesting and starts with kind of the moral mission of women. So, let's get right to the text and start with a quote. Mm -hmm. So, there seems now to be a kind of moral stagnation in our midst. Verily, the world awaits the coming of some new element, some purifying power, some spirit of mercy and love. The voice of woman has been silenced in the state, the church, and the home. But man cannot fulfill his destiny alone. He cannot redeem his race unaided. There are deep and tender chords of sympathy and love in the hearts of the downfallen and oppressed that women can touch more skillfully than man. The world has never yet seen a truly great and virtuous nation because in the degradation of women, the very fountains of life are poisoned at their source. It is vain to look for silver and gold from mines of copper and lead. So this is a really um, harsh criticism of men and She's really seeing the praises of women. So I find it problematic to degrade men in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And they have degraded women by denying them rights, but Mm -hmm. I don't think it's fair to degrade them in that way. Perhaps a more sophisticated argument would be, no, it's purely based on our status as citizens of the United States, not because we're better or worse, but we're all citizens. And so we should have equal rights, right? Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And 
that's interesting because it leads into the next point perfectly, which is equality. And I think that this actually leads to the most compelling argument for suffrage. Stanton says, we have no objection to discuss the question of equality, for we feel that the weight of argument lies wholly with us. But we wish the question of equality kept distinct from the question of rights. For the proof of the one does not determine the truth of the other. All white men in this country have the same rights, however they may differ in mind, body, or estate. That's powerful. Yes, agreed. I think there she got to the heart philosophically, the bedrock of that argument instead of you can get so easily twisted up. Yes, in the branches of the argument, but then she's hit like there, there it is. She got it right. Okay. Yes, like it doesn't even matter. Like we're not talking about men and men and women being equal or the same. Like that's not the point. Uh huh. It's that we deserve equal rights. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's really smart and really powerful. Yeah. So men and women deserve the right to vote purely by being citizens of the country. And she uses the support of the Declaration of Sentiments to state that the right to vote should be afforded to men and to women because they are the governed. Hmm. Same as the Irish man, same as the white man, same as the white woman. They Hmm. are the governed. So they deserve the right to vote. And this really, I think, is the golden seed of franchise. Hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating, Courtney. Did you have anything else on that? No. Okay. So one other topic that I know we wanted to talk about is, as we know, later in the suffrage movement, there's this heartbreaking development, right, between um, Stanton. So if you think of Stanton and Mott and working heart to heart and hand in hand with Frederick Douglass and Frederick Douglass was there as a champion of women's suffrage Mm -hmm. at this convention. He participates with Stanton in getting that ninth resolution passed and getting um, suffrage kind of on the agenda of the women's movement going forward. Mm -hmm. There's just this heartbreaking development where there's a falling out between, well, Frederick, on a personal level, a falling out between Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but between the movements for suffrage, between the um, suffrage movement for African Americans and and for women, for white women. And um, I just want to, we just wanted to mention that today, even though we'll talk more in depth about it, because there are some pieces in this, in these speeches right from the very beginning where these white women are comparing the oppression and the subjugation of white women, comparing them to the severity of the oppression of the enslaved African people, African-American people at the time. And so I, the way I kind of think of this is that at the Seneca Falls Convention, you have Douglas and Stanton and Mott kind of looking at each other like, yeah, we're, we are all oppressed. So I I kind of thought of this like analogy of they're all drowning, their heads are going under the water, and they're saying, let's get out of this together. But what you see later in the the years after the convention is you see more and more of these white women using these racial stereotypes with the Irish and with language of like women are slaves and their husbands are their masters. And when it becomes obvious that America doesn't have the um, doesn't have it in them yet to 
truly push for universal suffrage, and they're going to prioritize either white women or black men first. That's when you see these white women, especially Stanton, I mean, if they're all drowning, you just picture her. She's pushing down the heads of the people around her to push herself up. And she starts saying, like, when she starts seeing the writing on the wall that former slaves are going to get the vote before her <laughs> her group of people that she's advocating for, even though she'd been an abolitionist, she it starts getting ugly, right? I mean, you and I both read these quotes, and it just breaks your heart. There's, she just uses the most awful her the the, her I guess private um biases and racist beliefs start coming out in all their ugliness and I just want to read one quote because I feel like Douglas Frederick Douglas was really hurt by this I don't know if you've read Courtney that um biography of Frederick Douglas by David Blight that came out that's fantastic I haven't finished it yet but he talks in great detail about um the falling out between these individuals and then how that's representative of the movements in America to parting ways where they had been born out of the abolitionist movements together and that there was a schism that we still see right in white feminism Mm -hmm. and the complete blindness that um many white people have to the oppression of people of color. So anyway, this quote is by Frederick Douglass, and this is years after the Seneca Falls Convention, but I still think that it's really critical to bring up. So he, he, this is Frederick Douglass answering the claim that, that the women's oppression is just as bad as the oppression of people of color at the time. He says, when women, because they are women, are hunted down in the cities of New York and New Orleans, when they are dragged from their houses and are hung from lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains bashed out upon the pavement, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down over their heads, then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. Um, Wow. it's pretty powerful. Like there's, there's really nothing else to say about that. And I think as a white woman myself, um, often I have the tendency just as I'm puzzling through these issues to compare um, systemic injustice, to compare different manifestations of systemic injustice Mm -hmm. to each other. And I think that's fine in terms of analyzing, oh, that happens there and that happens here. And, and what are the similarities and what are the differences? But I think it's, really important to keep in mind that one is not as severe as the other Mm -hmm. um and to remember that to remember the intersections of different people's identities and how any white person is is a white woman is in a position of privilege because of our whiteness and it's a very different experience Mm -hmm. did you have something i just that you wanted to say about that or oh just that yeah you can say that uh that white women should have the right to vote that's true mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but to compare it to um the way that enslaved people were being treated i mean there's no there's no comparison mm-hmm. no there's not there's no comparison that's right well that just about wraps it up um was there anything else from these documents or just maybe kind of a summary of the things that we read courtney what what are some of your takeaways 
Um, so I, I just find these, um, these documents really exciting because they really were the first and most public declaration for women's suffrage. Um, mm-hmm. And I really found the discussion of equality and morality um, really interesting and also a seed that was nurtured um, in second wave feminism Mm -hmm. as like the mold for women's role in the home being cracked. And, and I think Stanton and Mott really paved that way with this convention, this first huge women's rights convention. Yeah, I agree. And I think that was my takeaway one one of my takeaways too as I think back to when we read um Gerda Lerner earlier right. and and how women have been struggling women all over the world in every time period have been struggling alone and we we have women writers who wrote brilliantly and scathingly and intelligently about the um the injustice that they were experiencing and that they saw in their societies, but because there was no collaboration between women, it never got passed on to future generations as evidenced Mm -hmm. by our conversation earlier where we're like, Nope, we've never read these documents. We haven't had exposure to this. And yet these women's thoughts and feelings are recorded over the centuries. Mm -hmm. And so this moment is so powerful because you finally have you have women who were reading a declaration of their feelings and their thoughts and reso- like you said the resolutions of here's what we're going to do about it to an audience of 300 people mm-hmm. um and on the second day an audience including men and women and finally there was a movement that was actually going to change things um and i just think though it is flawed in the way that we look at it in the documents flawed, the movement as it progressed was terribly flawed, but this was the first step um, in this process and it got the ball rolling that would pick up momentum and continue to change the world in ways that we are still feeling today and that are still relevant today. So absolutely. Well, thank you, Courtney. This has been really fun. Yes, it was such it was such a pleasure to to record this with you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for being here. 